Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to preach from a passage of Scripture that the, the greatest preacher in all of history once preached about. Now, does anybody have any ideas about who the greatest preacher of all time is? Hannah? Jesus, that's right. Jesus preached from 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, he preached to a crowd of people who were his neighbors. People he grew up and people whom he knew. And I sure hope that this morning you will receive my sermon better than the people did there in Nazareth. Do you remember what happened in Nazareth that day? Nathan, what happened? He says they took him and they threw him off the cliff. Well, that's what they planned to do. But they didn't get it done, did they? They took Jesus after he preached from 2 Kings chapter 5, or he actually just made one little point from 2 Kings chapter 5, and they tried to take him and throw him off the cliff at Nazareth. They tried to kill him. Now, you know the history because it wasn't time for Jesus to die, and Jesus wasn't prophesied to die by falling off a cliff. And so on that day, he just walked right through the crowd and walked away. A crowd trying to kill him. But what was it? What was it in 2 Kings chapter 5 that made his own neighbors so mad at him that they wanted to throw him off a cliff? Well, as we dive into the history of 2 Kings 5, you'll actually be surprised that there are many, many different applications and lessons that we can learn from 2 Kings chapter 5. In fact, sometimes I tell you that there are accounts in the Bible that we learn about that are obscure. That means not many people know about them. But I'm going to tell you, most of my collection of Bible storybooks, and I didn't check them all, but almost all of them, have this history in them. This is a very famous account from history. Very, very, very famous. And part of the reason is, is because it is filled with very important lessons. It is filled with lessons about pride. It has lessons for us about humility. It has lessons for us which is kind of what Jesus was getting at, with ethnic prejudice. You know what that means? That means that you don't like people simply because of who they are and what their lineage and what their nation and what kind of people they are. That's actually the reason why they tried to throw Jesus off the cliff is because the Jews in Nazareth thought they were extra special. It's just kind of interesting because if you read the Gospels, I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail here, and you see how the Jews viewed themselves, it's kind of interesting because it's kind of the way a lot of Americans view themselves. And it's something to just take heed and beware of because we have been a greatly blessed people just as Israel was a greatly blessed people. 
but it doesn't give us this superiority or this idea that we are above everyone else. It should cause us to be humble and it should cause us to be thankful, not proud and haughty. Well, there's other lessons in all of this. We're going to learn about a little girl who was a servant, a little girl who had every reason to hate, but yet forgave and was used of God to tell of God's greatness. There are so many lessons in this chapter. We learn about prophets or servants of God who are greedy of filthy lucre. You heard that phrase? They were greedy of ill-gotten gain, of money that was gotten the wrong way. We're going to see that illustrated for us today. We're going to learn about the terrible side of lying and how important it is to tell the truth. The chapter is just chocked full with incredible truths and lessons that we can learn from. So let's dig in. Let's start with explaining who the nations involved are. We have one king here. We don't know his name, but here we have the king of Syria. All right? Now, if you can picture in your mind the nation of Israel, picture the Sea of Galilee, and over to the right of the Sea of Galilee is the nation of Syria. Okay? That's Syria. They were a wicked nation. They were a nation who had caused lots and lots of trouble for Israel. Does anybody want to play the king of Israel this morning? Nobody wants to play the king of Israel? Okay, I'll play the king of Israel. So we've got Israel. Syria and Israel. Guess what? We don't get along. At all. In fact, Syria, for many years now, has been coming into Israel and raiding Israel. They would send little armies, little military soldier cohorts into the land of Israel, and they would come and they would surprise attack villages and towns. They wouldn't go to Samaria, where I'm at. They wouldn't go to Samaria, the big capital city, because Samaria is a stronghold. Samaria is a fortress. But they were known to be coming into Israel with these small armies and raiding towns. Now, what do you think they did when they raided these towns? Well, they took their treasures, but they also took something else. They took slaves. Here's one of them. They took slaves. Israelite people to be their slaves in Syria. And, and, and we're not just talking about men. We're talking about children. Here in this passage, described as a little maid. Imagine, you're just happy at home. You know your home? Picture yourself at your home. How would you feel if all of a sudden one day you had no idea and a whole bunch of soldiers came barging in 
to your house, put you in chains, and drug you away to a foreign land. They talked to you, but you couldn't understand them. They'd bark at you orders and tell you to do things. But for weeks, maybe months, it took you before you could understand even what they were saying to you. Imagine, they most likely beat you when you didn't obey their commands. Oh, they, like the Assyrians, were known that if you just became weak or sick as you were drugged back to Syria, they would just leave you to die. Never a hope of ever seeing your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters. In fact, you may have seen your dad die trying to protect you. In fact, all your brothers and your family may have been killed right in front of you trying to protect you. Do you think that when you came to Syria as the slave and you be presented to the wife of the great captain of the host of Syria, that you would be a very cheerful maid? That you would be a happy maid? Now, I, I imagine if you now became the, the servant, the maid to the greatest captain in the land's wife, that you probably would get the chains taken off, right? Just a little girl. You think they would put chains on little girls? They did. And, and maybe you got a little bit of an upgrade because now you're serving, the, you're serving the, the wife of the great general. Who wants to be the wife of the great general? I can't be. I'm already the king. So who's going to be the wife of the great general? Hannah, you want to be the wife of the great general? No? I'm going to have to do You're going to be the wife of the great general. Oh, now look at this. This is who you serve. <laughs> now I know why she wanted to be the wife of the great general. She wants big sister to serve her. It didn't work that way then. I mean, then... We're talking about this is the wife of Naaman, the great Syrian general, Naaman's wife. You're now her servant. You help her with household chores. You help her with whatever she needs. I don't know. Cooking, laundry, cleaning, um, may, may, all kinds of things. Anything she wants. Now, if you had been ripped away from your family, do you think you would want good for Naaman's family? Do you think that you would want good things for the great Syrian general? In fact, he may have been the very general who either ordered or actually killed your family. 
Do you think you could serve somebody like that? This little maid did. This little maid did. She had every reason to hate them, to want bad to happen to them. But as we learn today, she wants good for them. Because now there's someone else you need to meet. And his name is Naaman. Look at 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. It tells us now, Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria. He's the general over it all. He's the captain of the host. He was a great man with his master. So you can imagine here, we have your majesty come. Here, the king and his right-hand man, his captain, the captain of the host. It's interesting, too, and this is kind of strange. He is honorable. Now, you might be asking this question, wait a minute. You've just now talked about him as being from this wicked nation, this um, captain of, of the army that's doing these terrible things. But yet it says that he is honorable? What all that includes, I don't know. But I think there's some good, significant understanding to it that even a soldier, high-ranking soldier, in a wicked land can be a man of honor. Was he a believer in Jehovah? No. No. But he was still an honorable man. And by him, it tells us, the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. Well, what's that talking about? Well, we're not exactly sure because the biblical record doesn't tell us. But if we look at some other records, we can get some hints. Some have jumped to the conclusion that it's referring to the fact that he led raids and military conquests against Israel and that God gave him victory over Israel. And that actually is possible and is true. Whether or not he was a general of some of those raids um, or actually conquests, we don't know. But we do know that about this time of history, there's another nation further north, further east, called Assyria. We have the king of Syria, but we have another kingdom called Assyria, further away, which is growing and growing and becoming more and more powerful. And if you keep following the history, you're going to find out that Assyria becomes one of the great world powers in history. And history tells us that Syria and Assyria had some problems and that there was a general in that army who gained the victory over this mighty, mighty kingdom of Assyria to the northeast. Here, this may be what it's talking about. This may be the biblical-inspired reference to that victory. And it says here that it's the Lord who had given deliverance to Syria by him. It tells us that he was also a mighty man of valor. He was an honorable man. He was the captain of the host. He was a great man. God had used him to bring deliverance to Syria. He's a mighty man of valor. You've got it all. But there is a problem. 
you better move away from the king. He was a leper. Does that mean anything to you? He was a leper. A highly contagious disease which makes it so that you can't feel anything in your extremities. can't feel anything in your hands or in your feet. And so you know what happens when you can't feel anything? You can't feel pain. Did you know that God designed us to feel pain? Designed us to feel pain. You ever been walking along something and knocked your foot against something? Oh, 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 that hurt. Guess what? Your brain says, when I walk through this place, I'm going to be more careful. And, and, and you train yourself on how you knock into things. You, you learn where things are at. Like, I shouldn't tell you this because somebody might pull a prank on me. This table needs to be here because if I'm moving around up here, if this table is off, you know what I do to it? I bang into it and it doesn't feel very nice. And over time, I've learned where this table is at. I've learned where things are at in my house. And so I move around and, and I don't knock into them. Well, the reason I've actually trained myself all is because I felt those things. I've, I've, I've moved along, I felt them. And, and sometimes I burned my hand. And you know what? When I burn my hand, you know what I do? I real quick run and make sure to run cold water on it. And sometimes I'll go and put mustard on it or something to help cool it off fast. Try to bring healing, I'll take care of it. Um, a few weeks ago, I, I just was walking through my house, and all of a sudden I had a bad pain in my right foot. And I just was bad, and I, and I looked at it, and I, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. Um, I got a tweezers and picked around, thought maybe I had something in it. I couldn't figure it out, and I kept going and kept going. It kept hurting, and it kept hurting, and I kept ignoring it, and I ignored it for a few hours. I kept walking on it. But you know what? The pain got worse and worse and worse. So I got another tweezers and I went and I'm like, there's nothing in there. There's no splinter. There's nothing in there. I don't know why it's hurting so bad. It felt like I had a splinter and it was hurting. Well, finally, I got some help with a flashlight. You know what? I found a nice crystal clear piece of glass that was jammed deep down inside my foot. We had to get you go in and and it wasn't like pulling out. It was weird. Well, you know what? If it hadn't been giving me pain, I was bearing the pain and just like, okay, I just got to heal and deal with it. But it kept causing pain. It kept causing pain. And it forced me to do something about it. But if I had leprosy, I wouldn't have felt the pain. You know what would have happened? It would have gotten infected. Very often, people who have leprosy, they lose their fingers. I mean, you could be pushing something through a table saw and not even know that you're cutting your finger off because there'd be no pain. Leprosy is a very, very bad thing. It's an ugly thing. I wanted to show you some pictures, and I years ago found a really good picture, and I couldn't find it again because I found one that was kind of sort of appropriate because most of them are really disgusting and hard to look at. Because people become all bruised and cut and they, they rot. 
because they don't care. They, they, they injure themselves. And the injuries are severe because they can't feel the pain. So Naaman's got it. And it's also contagious. Oh, who wants to be around him? Well, if you were this little maid and you knew that your master had leprosy, how would you feel about it? You might be, serves him right. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you would wish that? He's going to raise his hand. I, I, I think I would feel that way. Serves him right. I hate him. I'm a slave in his house. Let him die. Let him be miserable. Let him just rot away. Do you think that's the way the little Hebrew maid treated Naaman? Some of you know ahead of the story. For a moment, pretend with me you don't know the rest of the story. I mean, you might think that she would try to assassinate him. Why? You could cut off his foot and he wouldn't even know it. He'd bleed to death. It's real. But what's this little maid going to do? Well, it tells us in verse 2 that the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress one day, Did you hear what she said? She said, would God, my Lord, Naaman, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. She's wishing that Naaman would be healed. And that Naaman would be healed by the prophet of the Lord. Isn't that incredible? This little servant girl had forgiveness in her heart for what they had done to her. We don't know that they had, her family is all dead. We don't know that. We don't know any of that necessarily. But it's very likely. And yes, she forgives these people. And she wishes good upon them. She wishes healing upon Naaman. Well, one of Naaman's servants hears this. And so he comes, and he hears what this little maid has said. And so he comes to speak to Naaman. And he tells him what's going on, what he's just heard. Thus, and thus and thus said the maid that is from the land of Israel. Would God, my Lord, were in the prophet that is in Samaria, for we, for he would recover him of his leprosy. So this servant, here's this little maid, make this wish to her mistress. And so he comes and tells Naaman about this. And there's somebody else eavesdropping. Guess who? His majesty. The king 
of Syria. And so, you can keep your distance from him, right? Yep, this is social distance. He has this plan. So, he says to Naaman, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. He's like, go. I'm going to send you an official royal letter so that when you come to the king of Israel, that king of Israel will know why you have come. And so, the king writes a letter. What do you write in this letter? What did you write? What does your letter say? Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. Ah, that's a plan. Here's the letter. Did you catch the letter? He says to him, he says to king of Israel, take this this letter, and um, know that it comes from Naaman, and recover him of his leprosy. So, here guys, you need to bring this letter to me. I'm the king of Israel. And so, this letter comes to me. I'm the king of Israel. Staying away from him. A royal letter from the king of Syria. It says, Now, when this letter is coming to thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman, my servant, to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. There's no treatment for leprosy. There's nothing you can do for leprosy. And here, the king of Syria has sent me this letter telling me to recover him of an incurable disease. You know what this letter is? This letter is a declaration of war. Am I God? Am I God to kill and make alive that this man does send unto me to recover a man of leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. Leprosy. Nobody can treat leprosy. Nobody can recover from leprosy. Leprosy is as good as being dead. Leprosy is as good as being dead. If I were to recover this man of his leprosy, I could raise people from the dead. Am I a God? Can I do that? Can I? Oh, by the way, don't forget something. All of us northern kings are all wicked. None of us. We don't know which king this is, by the way. We don't know if this is Jehu, if this is one of Ahab's sons before Jehu is king. We don't know who it is. But none of them were righteous. None of them trusted in God. What am I going to do with this? You know what's incredible about this? Me. 
the king of Israel, no less of God and his prophet than the little maid. That's pretty special if you're a kid here today. Did you know that? You might think, oh, the adults, the grown-ups, the powerful people, the kings, they know all about God. They know lots of things, don't they? I can't know much about God. Isn't it interesting? The king of Israel doesn't know as much about God and his prophet as a little maid who has been kidnapped and is in slavery in a foreign land. Well, news spreads. The king is horrified. The king takes this letter to be a declaration of war. That's why he says to his people and his advisors to consider and what he says, he seeks a quarrel. He seeks a fight with me. That's what this letter is all about. It's, it's a declaration of war because everyone knows, everyone knows that there's no recovering from leprosy. Well, except her. Oh, and someone else. News. News comes to Elisha. Hey, Elisha. Elisha. Did you hear what happened in the king's court today? A letter came from the king of Syria demanding that the king of Israel recover the captain of his host from leprosy. And the king's horrified because he knows it's impossible. And he's considering it a declaration of war. Well, when Elisha the man of God, whom this little maid over in Syria, the slave, knew about, heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes. He tore his clothes. He was in such agony over this that Elisha sends a message to the king of Israel. And what's your message? Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So this comes to the king. And so Naaman hears this, and you go, you're in your house. He's, he's there in his house. And um, Naaman, he leaves the king, and he comes to the house of Elisha. And this isn't just these two guys, okay? Uh, it's probably more people than are in here. This is a whole entourage. This is the, this is the royal caravan. And it has horses, and he's in a chariot, and he comes and he stands at the door of the house of Elisha. But you guys are in the house. Comes and, he, and he comes to stand at the door of Elisha. And Elisha knows they're all there. But you know what? Elisha doesn't come out of the house. Well, if I knew a guy had leprosy, I wouldn't come out of the house either. 
But that's not his reason he doesn't come out of the house. Elisha's not afraid. He's not afraid of the leprosy. But he knows that Naaman has a problem. Naaman is a proud man. And so Elisha simply gives a message. What's this message? Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. When Naaman heard this, he was wroth. He was furious. He was angry. And he went away and he said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come to me and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abaddon, Farpar, rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? Yeah, he ain't going to do this. Wash in that dirty Jordan River. You know, Naaman had taken a lot of baths. Guess what? He probably pursued a lot of treatments. And he probably had taken baths and all kinds of fancy, expensive essential oils. And it didn't do any good. And now he's just supposed to go wash in a stinky, dirty, pitiful Jordan River. He ain't going to do that. He envisioned that Elisha was going to come out and do a show. Put on a show. Abracadabra magic, heal him. You know, Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He sends a servant out to tell him to go take a bath in the stinky, smelly Jordan River. It's beneath him. Beneath him. So he marches off. He storms off in a rage. See here, we've got a proud man. It's interesting now, other lessons to be observed. We have now wise servants. For his servants came near to him. And they spoke to him and pled with him and made a suggestion. My father is a prophet. Had bidden thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith unto thee, wash and be clean? Oh, you're very wise. You come to him and you address him with esteem as my father. Honor. He didn't come to him and say, man, what's wrong with you? Sometimes we try to deal with things like that. It doesn't work. My father, he says. And he appeals to him actually in his pride. If the prophet had bid you to do some great, mighty thing, 
Wouldn't you have done it? How about it, Naaman? Would you do? Sure would. So how much rather than the servant says, when he says, wash and be clean, why wouldn't you do it? Now here's a lesson for all of us. Sometimes we find ourselves proud and angry. And so often our pride and our anger keep us from humbling ourselves and admitting we're wrong. Thankfully, Nahum humbles himself. He goes to that Jordan River and he dipped himself down in. Imagine with me that you're there. The chariot pulls up to the Jordan River. He stops. He gets down off that chariot. All of his entourage is watching. He goes down into the water and he dips himself down into the water and he comes back up. Nothing. Now, I want you to imagine something. We don't know how severe his leprosy was. His leprosy at this point may have only been skin deep, but it may have been very severe to the point where his hands had been deformed by the wounds, like even missing fingers. He goes down into the water a second time, and he comes back up. Leprosy's still there. Third time. Leprosy's still there. Fourth time, it's still there. Fifth time, it's still there. Six times, he comes up out of the water. It's still there. Now, I wonder when you would have given up, especially in the smelly Jordan River. He goes down that seventh time. And when he comes back up, the inspired record says this. His flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. That's amazing. His hands, his body, having been mutilated by running into things and hurting himself. And the flesh comes again to him, and he is healed according to the man of God, just as Elisha had said. Like the skin of a little child. Wow! Guess what? It had nothing to do with magical waters of the Jordan. I've been in the Jordan River, and it didn't help me. I didn't have any problems, but it didn't help me. Sometimes people think of, you, can, you know, when I was at the Jordan River, I could have bought souvenir bottles of water from the Jordan River because it's special. No, it's not. It's just water. Just water. What healed Naaman this day was his faith. He believed the word of the man of God who was speaking on behalf of God. And believing in God is what healed him. 
he is overwhelmed with thanksgiving. And he returns. He comes back to this man of God. He comes back to Elisha. He is going to offer thanksgiving to him. Remember, he had been sent by the king of Syria with 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. We're talking about in modern day money, millions of dollars. That's how much he was willing to pay for this miracle cure. And he's been cured. And so he brings this royal treasure back to Elisha. And he says he returned, verse 15, to the man of God. He and all his company came and stood before him and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. None. Millions of dollars is offered to Elisha this day, and he's not going to take any of it. Why? It doesn't tell us why, but we could consider and evaluate Nahaman's background and the culture in the Syrian court and all of the demon-possessed magicians and powerful, powerful wizards. We think of that stuff as in fantasy. It wasn't. There are people who have demons in them who perform miracles. It happened in the court of Pharaoh. And in some ways, it was happening in this court. In some cases, they couldn't do anything. Like in this case. They take lots of money. It was a major money-making profit scheme. And we know that it's happened in history. We have record of it in our Bibles. Whether or not it was in the court of Syria, we don't know for sure. But that kind of thing was real in these pagan courts. And in some parts of the world, it's still real. Brother Roberts last week was sharing a little bit about it with us in, in South Africa. It was real. And it was a money-making scheme for some of these people. And Naaman is perceiving that there's the same thing. This man of God, he he's, he's, must be like these wizards. He must be like these soothsayers. He must be like these magicians in the court of my king, of king of Syria. So he offers this fortune to him. But Elisha says, no, no. He urged him. He urged him, it tells us. But Elisha refused. And now listen to the confession of Naaman. Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And Elisha said unto him, Go in peace. So Naaman departed from him a little way. And before we go on with the account, because it continues in verse 20, I'd like to talk a little bit about this conversation. He asked for two mules laden with earth. He's going to take dirt back to his land. And he's saying that he is going to worship only the Lord God. 
the Lord God here is Jehovah. What is he doing here? Is this something left over from his pagan culture there in Syria? Perhaps, but it may also have a tie-in with some of the law of Moses. Because in Exodus, there was some significance with the ground, with the land of Israel. And God's saying, I'm going to appoint a place where my name and where I am to be worshipped. And perhaps Naaman had been informed of this or knew of this, and so he's seeking to in some way follow it. We don't know. But you know, I told you that all my Bible story books have the story of Naaman. But did you know that almost every single one of them skipped this part? You know why? Because it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. We have a man who is apparently following in certain kinds of pagan customs, maybe, maybe not. But then he's talking about the fact that when he comes back to his land, he's the captain of the host of the king of Syria. Who's your God? Rimen. Rimen is the God of Syria. And he knows that he's going to be called upon to go into the temples of Rimen with his majesty when his majesty worships. And he tells Elisha, I know that there is only but one God. He's acknowledging that there is no Rimen, even if there's demonic power connected to this guy, this idol, this image. He knows that it's not a God, for the Lord alone is God. He knows that. But he also knows he's going to be called upon to come into this house to worship with his master, the king. And you know what? He knows it's wrong. How do I know that? Because twice in verse 18, he asked that the Lord pardon him. You know what pardon means? Pardon means that you're guilty of something and you receive forgiveness for it. And this is kind of strange. He's asking for forgiveness something before he does it. We would say, that's crazy. Wouldn't we, Elisha? But why does Elisha not deal with it? This is fascinating. I believe what we see here is an evidence of why this is historical inspired history. Because if I were a Jew making up this story, this is not how I would have written it. One, I wouldn't have included it. And if I did include it, I would have had Elisha correcting him. But what's Elisha do? Go in peace. Now, we have to be careful of something. Because I'm tempted to say, ah, we can learn lots of lessons from this. And we can. But we need to be careful. Elisha's not telling him to go in peace because what's going on here is a good idea. Looking and considering the law of Moses and in an Israeli and theocratic perspective, that is where God is king, what's being proposed here as an idea is not a good idea. Because God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Period. It doesn't say, unless you're doing it for political reasons. 
You don't worship other gods. Period. So what's going on here? Well, let me give you a little glimpse into a prophet's life, sometimes pastor's lives. Do you know how many times just this week I have heard things or seen things that have been said to me or I have seen that are clearly not according to God's word? And do you know how many times I have to pray and say, Lord, do I say something? It's hard. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I do and I regret it. But sometimes I don't. And when I read this here with Elisha, I identify with him. Because I imagine that he's hearing this and he's saying, oh, no, 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 Naaman, no, 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 don't. Don't bow down to that God. But yet he doesn't say it. Why? Well, I wish I could tell you that, um, that there's a commentary on it. But there isn't. There isn't really a commentary on it. We do have some New Testament perspectives of times when rebuke was made, when correction, when instruction is given, and other times when it's not given. Was Elisha right in not offering correction and rebuke? Don't know. But I think that we can look at this here and we can take heed to say, how do we behave ourselves? Because not every situation is needful for us to jump on what's wrong. You ever met people who just constantly jump on what's wrong? Always, constantly, constantly. I think there's a, I don't want to call it a model, but there's an example here where that happens. And it's difficult. So you know what I'm going to leave it with? Pray for your pastor. Because I need a lot of wisdom and when to just be quiet, to overlook, to, as the scriptures say, wink at it. Even God has winked at things, it says. And when I need to be one who reproves, rebukes, exhorts, and instructs. And guess what? Don't just pray for your preacher. Pray for moms and dads. Because moms and dads need this wisdom too. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. Big brothers and sisters need it too because you know what they're always doing is correcting the little ones. Right? We got to be careful. And we need wisdom. We need wisdom. But we also don't compromise. And so we need to ask God for wisdom. Well, we're going to go back to this guy over here who's been rather quiet. You remember him? That's Gehazi. Huh. He's just seen Elisha turn down millions of dollars. Hmm. This bothers him. And so he's thinking over there. 
And it tells us in verse 20 that Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, he says, I think, to himself, Behold, my master hath spared Naaman the Syrian in not receiving at his hand that which he brought. But as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. Oh. Elisha refused the millions of dollars. He refused to take any of it. He was urged to take it. He refused. And now Gehazi, I'm going to run after him. I'm going to get some of that millions. I've got a plan. We're all out of time. What's going to happen? Do you know? Gehazi is going to invent a lie. And here now, this man who is learning about Jehovah is still very confused about what real truth is and what the real worship of Jehovah is all about. It's so confused in some ways that Elisha is exercising discretion in even correcting his bad theology. And now Gehazi is going to go to him and deceive him because he is greedy of filthy lucre. In Titus and 1 Timothy, it tells us that the bishop, who is the pastor, is not to be greedy of filthy lucre. It's very important. And now the servant of the man of God is greedy of filthy lucre. And he's going, and he's there, inventing a lie. Is he going to follow through on it? Is he going to actually go to Nahum and present this lie to him in order to get some of the money? Some of these change of garments. You'll have to wait till next time to find out. Or take your family Bible reading and read ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. May we be like the little maid. The little maid who found forgiveness in her heart. Who found love in her heart. For those who had done her great wrong and wanted what was best for them and pointed them to the one who could introduce them to you. Lord, may we have such kindness, such forgiveness, and such a perspective of life. Father, give us wisdom. We have many tough situations in life. Guide us, help us. We praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your salvation. We praise you that you are all-powerful and almighty, that we can trust and rest in you. Lord, help us also, each day, each day to know you and to know your word. And Lord, I pray that you would renew our mind that we may think according to your words and your ways. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.